Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I am Michele Matarazzo, the editor-in-chief of the podcast. For today's special issue, we had the pleasure to have with us the first author of the article awarded as Best Research Article of the Movement Disorder Journal for 2022. Between the high number of very important and impactful research articles published in the journal, the editorial board chooses every year the best one for this very special award. The article selected this year is titled A Multi-Step Model of Parkinson's Disease Pathogenesis and has been published in the November 2021 issue of the Movement Disorders Journal. Its first author, Campbell the Huron from the University of Otago, is here with us today. So first of all, hello, Campbell, congratulations for this award and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vicky, and thank you to the Movement Disorders Journal for this award, which was very unexpectedly very appreciative of it. Yeah, well, congratulations. So let's talk a little bit about this article. We know a lot about Parkinson's disease, how it manifests, how to treat some of the symptoms, uh, some of the underlying neuropathology, but there is something we actually, we do not, nothing at all, and that is how it starts. Now, you apply the statistical method to uh, try and understand better the pathogenesis of the disease. Before we start discussing about the results, what is the Armitage and Doll multi-stand model and where does it come from? It's an excellent question. And I guess fundamentally, what we were trying to understand with this article was whether there's something about the age-specific incidence, so the way that incidence of Parkinson's varies across the lifespan, that will tell us something fundamental about the way the disease develops. And that's something that's actually being looked at in other clinical scenarios, and particularly the cancer literature dating right back into the 1950s, which is where the Armitage Dill model that you reference comes from in the first place. And we know there's so many associations, risk factors, but how does all that fit together? So one possibility is that it develops as a multi-stage, multi-step condition. It's not just one exposure that happens. Something happens, then something else builds on that and it keeps building until we eventually see this entity that we think of as Parkinson's disease. Now, if there is a multi-step process at play, then there are actually certain predictions about the way incidence will vary across the age span that you can then look at using this Armitage doll model. If you consider, say it was a one-step process to develop Parkinson's disease, then the incidence in a given year will just be the likelihood that you're exposed to whatever that inciter of that step is. If it's a two-step process, then the incidence in a given year will be the likelihood that you've undergone the first step by that year, multiplied by the likelihood of the second step happening in that year. And you can keep going with that to an end-step process. Now, without going into the maths too much, it turns out that if you take the log of the age-specific incidence, that will be equal to one less than the number of steps that have been required, multiplied by age, plus a constant. And that constant factor basically is the summation of all of the environmental exposure, the likelihood of being exposed to these different steps across time. So essentially taking the log of age specific incidence by age should return a straight line. And the slope, if we remember back to our basic maths, y equals mx plus d, the slope of that line is one less than the number of steps required to about the disease. I won't try to explain it anymore, but it's worth looking at the equations in the paper. That's the basic model. And you can then test that prediction by, if you've got the incidence data, by taking log of the age-specific incidence by log of age. If it's a straight line, then that would be consistent with the multi-step process being at play. Okay. 
Well, it is a little bit complicated for me. I'm not a, an expert on this kind of modeling and uh, even in maths, I've never been very good, but I trust what you're saying. So now the other key aspect of the study, the thing that was crucial also for doing this type of modeling and analysis was the sample size. You included more than 15,000 incident Parkinson's disease subjects. How did you manage to do that? This was very much building on the work of some of my co-authors and in particular Daniel Meyer. So he developed a few years ago, it was actually published in Movement Disorders in 2018, a model based on drug prescribing to estimate the likelihood that a given person who's receiving drugs that we might give to someone with Parkinson's, the likelihood they actually have Parkinson's disease. Now, in New Zealand, we have access to all of the drug prescriber data for a centralised database. So basically, if somebody has given a prescription for levodopa and done some caches it in, we'll know about it at some level. So Daniel designed a Bayesian iterative model that basically goes through and assigns a weight and probability that a person has Parkinson's disease based on the medication that they're receiving. Obviously, if you're 40 and you're receiving rapinarol at a relatively low dose, it might be more likely you've got wrist leg syndrome than Parkinson's disease. But if you're 60 and you've got TDS, levodopa and some entacapone or something like that, it's going to be very likely it's Parkinson's. And he has an iterative model to improve the estimates. But what that means is that every person in New Zealand who gets a drug that could be for Parkinson's disease has a probability of having Parkinson's associated with them, rather than just a binary yes or no. And it's that data that we use to define our incident cases and then put into this model. So now you had that data, you had that model. Now, what are the main results of your study? So we had a few hypotheses. The first thing was, it's the incidence data consistent with the multi-step process. Would there be a straight line if we took the log of the age-specific incidence and log of age? But more than that, we're interested in whether we know people who develop Parkinson's at a younger age probably have a greater genetic um, predisposition. And actually, this sort of work has also been done in motor neuron disease, and they've developed a multi-step sort of model within motor neuron disease. And some lovely studies show that people who carry causative genetic mutations, like SON1 or CNRF72, require fewer steps to develop the disease, presumably because the genetics account for a number of the things that need to happen. We couldn't look at individual genes in this, but we could look at age. So we thought that people who are younger may require fewer steps than people who are older. So that was our second kind of hypothesis we chased. And then there's a couple of other things we might come to. But basically, the, the big result was that there was a very straight line when we took the, the long, long curves. So I think the R squared value was 0.994 or something like that. So it was very much consistent with the multi-step process, although I should say not specific for that. There are other things that could also give a straight line in that setting. But actually, when we then looked at fitting a different form of model, which allowed two slumps rather than one, to look at that hypothesis of the younger people having fewer steps, we found good evidence that fitted the data better. So kind of the main result was that Parkinson's incidence is consistent with the multi-step process. Before the age of 45, you require six steps on average, and that's a group average rather than the individual person in front of you. And after the age of 45, which obviously is most people that we see at clinic, it's an eight-step process to develop the disease. But I do want to emphasise that as a group average number. It doesn't mean that every person that you see would have needed exactly those steps. So that was the first main thing. But we then wanted to see if we could use the model. Because to a degree, the models are useful if it can tell us something extra about the disease process. So one really common observation is that Parkinson's is much more common in many than women. Almost, but not quite all, populations around the world have shown that. 
And I guess fundamentally a question would be, is that because there's something different about Parkinson's when it develops in women, it's a pathogenesis, the pathway is different, or is it environmental exposures that really modulates that? And we're able to look at exactly that question with this model, because basically the slopes, which you remember are related to the number of sets, if the slopes are the same, then we could say that actually it takes the same number of steps, whether you're a male or female. But if the y-intercepts are different, then that would suggest it was the environmental exposures that are really driving that, that sex difference with Parkinson's. And that's exactly what we found. There was absolutely no evidence that the slopes were different between men and women, but very strong evidence that there was a, a difference in the y-intercept term, which basically suggests that the sex difference in Parkinson's is primarily related to environmental exposures or the likelihood of undergoing these exposures to the steps. Okay, well, that's very interesting. So maybe the men are exposed to something? That would be one possibility. I guess the other thing we can't get into with the model is the idea of protective exposures as well. But I think probably the risk factor exposure would be more likely. And I think some evidence for that comes from in some populations where you don't see that same sex difference. And I think Japan might be one of the countries where it's less obvious, actually, that male versus female split. One of the hypotheses has been that might be around smoking rates, which is actually a protective factor in Parkinson's. But I think it certainly points to studying the differences between populations where there is or isn't a sex difference. One thing that has been suggested in the past is the hormonal exposure can account from that difference. Could it count as a step? Yeah, in that case, it would probably be the response to the exposure, maybe. So maybe there's something about being a woman, that means that even if you have an exposure, it's less likely to make you undergo that step. And so that would also fit. Okay. That is very interesting. And actually, one of the other things that I found really interesting of the paper is this kind of drop off of the incidence after the age of 80, 85. How do you explain that? So this is really interesting. And I think actually, this is something that's crucial when we think about pathogenic models of Parkinson's. We have to be able to explain why if you get into the very old people, the incident rates really do drop off quite dramatically. And I think a lot more than it would be just from underdiagnosis because people are likely to be in rest homes or people don't get to see a neurologist and get the diagnosis. There's something about being very old that makes it less likely that you'll get Parkinson's. Now, in this paper, again, we borrowed directly from the cancer literature. There's been two possibilities to explain that very late age drop-off of incidence. One is that there's some sort of competing factor that as you get older, it makes you less likely to go forward and develop the disease. And so one possibility, I guess, in the context of Parkinson's could be that you could start down the pathway, but as you get older, maybe some lysosomal changes, mitochondrial changes, the cell apoptosis rather than continue on to become a sort of a PD cell that can spread out into a nuclear or something. So that's one possibility, and it's called an extinction model, basically. But the other possibility, and actually the one that won out quite dramatically when we looked at the data, this idea of a susceptibility model. So that's the idea that actually, from the beginning, there is a group of people who can get Parkinson's and a group of people who can't. And basically the reason that you drop off with age is that you run out of people. The pool of people who could ever develop Parkinson's is depleted. Now, the way we modeled that in this paper, we had to basically, it gets quite complicated, we had to say that you're either susceptible or you're not. In all honesty, the way I think that probably would play out is it's going to be a weighted susceptibility, maybe determined by hundreds and thousands of genetic variants and all these sorts of things. But nevertheless, there may be some people who are just never going to get Parkinson's. And the actual numbers that came out to this model, and again, I would caution against over-interpreting it because it wasn't perfect. And I think it gives us an idea of the direction to go 
about 11% of males and about 6% of females were sort of ever susceptible to develop Parkinson's. It didn't mean they would develop it, but they kind of filled up the pool there. Which again pointed to another factor that might explain some of the sex difference. If there's some other factor about being a woman that makes you less susceptible. Well, those are amazing results. And they open the future investigation for a lot of hypotheses and uh, follow-up hypotheses. And actually talking about that, what are your plans for the future? Do you <laughs> want to keep studying this model or modeling in general using this huge amount of data that you have to better understand the pathogenesis of Parkinson's? Absolutely. And I think fundamentally what we're trying to achieve, we're not saying for sure that this is the model, but certainly the data fit this idea. But a model is only as useful as what it can tell you about the world and allow you to probe new questions and ask. And I think within this multi-step framework, there's a number of questions that, that can be asked. I think that certainly what we'd like to do is to obviously make sure it's a generalizable model, so repeat this in other data sets. We haven't submitted it yet, but we have repeated this in a UK Parkinson's data set and get incredibly similar results, which is really exciting. It suggests to us that this is something that is generalizable beyond the New Zealand context and where you've used a different way of identifying cases as well. Obviously, finding what the steps are is you know, a very yeah. important thing, but I think that's it's going to be an international work, ongoing effort with that sort of thing. And I think also we, we are really interested in this idea of susceptibility. And I think that it does get more complicated, but some way combining what you know about a person's genetic susceptibility, and this is something that obviously there's a lot of work going on to understand genetic predispositions to these conditions. If you can somehow put this into the model to better understand how that incidence changes. So I think that's another really important area. Okay, so you do have a lot of work to do. There's always more work. Yeah, and that's, that's amazing that you found the exact same results using a different cohort. Yeah, no, we were, we were genuinely excited about that. It's, it's really nice. Well, congratulations again. And is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, and just like, I guess, extend a massive thank you to the Movement Disorders Journal. First of all, for the honor that you know, they bestowed on us with this award, it really came out of nowhere and was. It was really exciting. I think more generally, for this particular article, I, I think I can honestly say this was the most pleasant review process I went through. Like the reviewers we had were excellent, and they actually did contribute to the, the formulations that we, that we ended up making. You know, for me, it was an example of how science should be done. You know, it wasn't an antagonistic process. They were helpful, but they were critical, and it, it, it was a really... And, you know, overall, I think it helped the, the strength of the paper a lot. And I think just thank you to Movement Disorders. You know, it's a wonderful journal. I think it's, it does what, what, as clinicians, but also scientists, we want, right? It, it has good clinical information, but it's grounded in proper science. You know, it's a proper translation journal. It's why I read it, why we want just to get our things here. So, so thank you. Well, that is great. I'm, I'm sure the external board will be very happy about this. And the reviewers, they know who they are. They will be very happy listening to this. We have interviewed Dr. Campbell and Huron, author of the article, a multi-step model of Parkinson's disease pathogenesis awarded as best 2022 research article from movement disorders. Congratulations again, Campbell, and the rest of the authors, and thank you all for listening. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> the views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website. <laughs>